Sorry to spoil the surprise, but if you're getting gift from me this Christmas, you're getting coffee from my favorite coffee company, Black Rifle Coffee. Every morning when I go into the hill, I have a steamy, hot, delicious cup of Black Rifle, just black. And that's also how I drink it and the name of the coffee, by the way. It is delicious, okay? The aromas, the different taste profiles that come through are incredible. Oh, and by the way, this is a company run by and for veterans, including veterans of the United States Special Forces. These guys are amazing. Black Rifles Coffee Club makes things so easy. Just pick your blend, the amount you want, and they'll ship the coffee right to your door. Check this out for yourself. They offer three, six, and 12-month prepaid and pay-as-you-go subscriptions. The best-tasting, most energizing coffee imaginable, and they help veteran and first responder causes. Black Rifle Coffee is the gift that keeps on giving. Visit BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck for 15% off your order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. You are entering the Freedom Hut. Lies, lies, and more lies from the media about the caravan for weeks all the way up to today. Just what is the truth of what's been going on south of our border and what can we do about it? Plus, General Motors cutting about 15,000 jobs. People are starting to say they're worried about the economy, China, the trade war. We will get to the truth separated from the fiction and also the latest on the Mueller probe coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, your mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. You hear me look at children get being subjected to tear gas. That's the United States causing that. That's outrageous. We have seen the images of the children and the women, and there has got to be a pragmatic and compassionate answer here that does not involve tear gassing children. That is not who America is. There's also questions whether or not anyone actually threw rocks yesterday. NPR was reporting that actually it was relatively peaceful. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. The media is lying to you, lying through straight-out falsehood, lying through misdirection, through exaggeration, all kinds of lies. Omission, misdirection, you name it. Lying to you about what's going on with immigration, with illegal aliens, with every aspect of this debate and discussion. They are constantly throwing up nonsense and hoping that we don't catch on to it. Let, let me just give you a, a quick a quick and dirty here on the lies on immigration. I mean, you're, ju- you're just hearing there about tear gassing children. No, they deployed tear gas against a mob, a mob that was using women and children as human shields while they threw rocks at Border Patrol officers. What is Border Patrol supposed to do? Put down their shields, no tear gas? So yeah, just throw rocks at us because, you know, there are kids around here. They have use of force protocols for a reason, and the use of force protocols were adhered to. But here are the biggest media lies about the caravan crisis. Number one, it's mostly women and children. No, it is not. But you've heard that from so many people. Oh, it's women and children. It's women and children. That's not true. Why have you been told that so many times by the media? Well, because it's easy for them to lie about this. It makes their base happy. 
Number two, it's mostly valid asylum seekers. No, it is not. In fact, we'll play later for you. A guy at MSNBC made the, I'm sure, unforgivable over there mistake of reporting on the truth of what is going on with this caravan. Big, big problem. You can't, can't tell people the truth. They're not asylum seekers in a, in a valid sense. They are fraudulent asylum seekers. They will say what they are told to say, what they're being coached to say at the border, when in reality they are economic migrants who are seeking to be in the United States. People keep saying, oh, they're seeking better opportunity. Yeah, I mean, also they're seeking a large, safe, wealthy welfare state, which is what America is for a lot of illegal aliens. So there's that. Number three, another big media lie here. No criminals. Remember how we were talking about in the early days of the caravan, how there's probably criminal elements and there's a safety issue here? Oh, no, no, no criminals, they were saying. Well, now it turns out that just based on whom they've already identified so far, we're looking at about 600 criminals, which is roughly 10% of the caravan overall, are known criminals. Apart from the criminal act of trying to cross in the United States, uh, not at a port of entry, illegally. So there, there are plenty of people to look at here and say, oh, that, that's actually a criminal. That's, so that's, that's a big lie. Number five, no external organizers. No external organizers. Well, who are the people that are showing up and providing legal advice and food and water and, and assisting them? And, oh, you mean there are organizers there? Yep, of course. Number six, that the troop deployment is not helpful. It turns out that Customs and Border Patrol disagrees with the notion that the U.S. military presence at the border was not helpful. They found that it would be quite helpful and they could use more assistance. And then another lie here, number seven, that there's no, US, there's no threat to U.S. personnel posed by this whole caravan. Play, play five and play six here, uh, uh, Brandon. Play them both. I kind of challenge that this was a peaceful protest um, or that the majority of these people were claiming asylum. Uh, we ended up making about 42 arrests. Only eight of those were uh, females and there were only a few children involved. The vast majority of the people we're dealing with are adult males. One of the groups that I watched, uh, the, one of the groups that actually several of them were arrested, they passed 10 or 15 marked border patrol units walking east to west or west to east, I'm sorry. Uh, numerous uh, uniformed personnel as they were chanting uh, waving a Honduran flag and throwing rocks uh, at the agents. If they were truly asylum seekers, they would have just walked up with their hands up and surrendered, and that did not take place. What I find unconscionable is that would, people would intentionally take children into this situation. What we saw over and over yesterday was that the group, the caravan, as we call them, would push women and children towards the front and then begin basically rocking our agents. Our agents were being assaulted. A uh, large group rushed the area and they were throwing rocks and bottles at um, my men and women, putting them in harm's way as well as uh, other members of uh, the caravan. Uh, we needed to disperse the group and with that assaultive nature, it was, it was imperative that we disperse them from the area. And we started off the show with all these people like, oh, they're tear gassing children. That's just a lie. They deployed tear gas against rioters and rock throwers, and some people happen to have children in the air. This would be like saying they're, they're, they're shooting children. They're shooting children, uh, you know, at, when, when the police have to intervene in a terrorist incident. No, they, they shot at people 
who were terrorists and there were children nearby because they were trying to save lives, it would not be it would not be a proper description to just say, well, they shot at children. Yeah, there were bullets that were flying, but they weren't actually trying to hurt the children. They were trying to get other people. I mean, the, but this is what I mean. This is this is what the media does, whether it's, you know, reporting on how Hamas operates against Israel or reporting on how our own Border Patrol deals with people trying to get across the border. They just find ways to twist it, to lie about it. Here's a perfect example. There are photos, there are journalists, lots of people down there. I was actually going to go down there this week, but the last minute my travel plans uh, had to change. I, I wanted to go, but I, I basically couldn't get somebody to cover for me on, on Rising, and so I, I, had to, I got responsibilities. But I was trying to get down there for the whole week. Hopefully I'll get down there soon. There's plenty of people covering this issue, lots of media down there. They see what's going on. They know. But you can do this anywhere. They pick one photo, one photo to talk about on, on TV, as though that's indicative of everything that's happening and, and the entire problem. You know, he, he, here's the media just freaking out about this. Play eight. But look at the photo. See for yourself. That group it includes men, women, and several children, some of them trying to cross after being denied access to the port of entry where they could legally claim asylum. One photo shows a mother struggling to scoop up her children and flee the fumes. I mean, this photo, shared around the world, shows a family running from the fumes. The this is a shameful American moment. It's a shameful American moment. Those children, those pictures, are, are the pictures we saw at the end of the Vietnam War. Comparing this to the end of Vietnam War, I mean, this, these people have no shame. They also seem to have no brains, but they have no shame. They're all talking about the same photo. I saw that this is the, there's one photo they really like, just like when we had family separation issue at the border. Remember they showed the child who was crying and that was emblematic of the whole situation. That was supposed to symbolize all of it. Turns out that she wasn't even separated from her family. And when you learn the backstory of the photo, it's propaganda. It's, it's not an honest representation of what was going on there. And to say that what's happened at the border to, to find one family with a woman, you know, who's uh, grabbing her child by the arm. I got to tell you, if you've got small kids and you think that bringing them into a riot situation is smart, you know, at what point do the parents deserve a hold on a second? What the heck are you doing here moment? You know, put your children in, in, in harm's way in that way. What if just this mob that's trying to crawl over the fences and, and overrun Border Patrol? What if one of them? You know, runs into your child, runs over your child as they're trying to flee the tear gas. I mean, it's just a dangerous situation. And the fact that there are all these reports that they actually try to push some of the women in the caravan forward, push the children forward, goes to show you, at least in some cases, what kind of men we're really dealing with here. Are these people of honor and integrity who are trying to come across the border? I mean, if they're putting women and children in, in front, as they are antagonizing and assaulting police, I think we all know the answer to that. And also this notion that throwing rocks is not a big deal. Let me tell you, to all the libs over at CNN and MSNBC who are acting like that's just, you know, what happens, man. No, it is not. If they were to try throwing a rock at a D.C. Metro cop, They'd be lucky if the worst that happened was the guy pulled out a baton and went to work on their knees while they arrested them. You don't get to throw rocks at people. Just you know, think about this for a moment. What if one of those rocks actually had hit a Border Patrol agent in the temple? I mean, what if, what if it hit him in the nose? 
Do you want to be that Border Patrol agent? We're not talking about mean words. We're not talking about protests. We're talking about people who are engaged in an assault with a weapon, using a projectile here. I I like that, that Tom Homan's out there. Somebody's out there with real background, real knowledge, calling this stuff out. This idea that the tear gas was an overrepresentation. Notice how we're, we're never dealing with the substance of the issue, which is there's an invasion of illegal aliens trying to overrun a U.S. Border Patrol sector. And with the Democratic Party cheering it on and running interference, that's what's happening. But they'll, no, they'll find one photo. They'll find one aspect. Oh, the, the, the tear gas that was used. That's the entire news story from their perspective emotionalize it, personalize it, go Alinsky on this. Don't allow this to be a real national level policy discussion. Don't allow people to figure out that what's really at stake here is, is the United States a country or not? Do we have sovereignty? Do we have control over our borders? I mentioned Tom Homan. He's laying it down. Play 10. A lot of these people, based on our intelligence, have been deported before. So when they enter the country, that's a felony. Yeah. But one thing I want to say, though, for the naysayers and tear, tear guys, need to get this out. For those naysayers, put on a uniform, strap a gun to your hip, get rocks thrown at you, and tell me there wasn't a better response. It was non-lethal law enforcement response that was proper, considering they're being assaulted. Yeah, what, what do they want them to do? What do they think the proper response is when law enforcement is being assaulted? And remember, that's what Border, Border Patrol is, is sworn law enforcement. They are armed law enforcement officers. A lot of them, by the way, are veterans, and a lot of them are, are Hispanic and Latino. So while we're always told that they're racist, terrible, you know, like, like the, the, the stormtroopers from Star Wars, the truth is that these are Americans doing a very important job. Many of them are minorities. Many of them are veterans. But the left will spit on them anyway, just like they'll spit on ICE. Abolish ICE, they were saying all summer. These people are a disgrace, a total disgrace. And the Democratic Party, they've lost, they have lost their mind on this issue. And, and they're not to be taken seriously because they are unserious. It's troubling that this plays out in the way that it does. It's, uh, it's bothersome to me that we have to sit here and watches CNN and all these other channels engage in just the worst kind of distortions, the worst kind of, uh, of left-wing propagandizing about how some, like, as though, you know, the Trump administration has set up a bunch of thugs at the Statue of Liberty turning away the, you know, the tired, the weak, and the hungry of the world and all this. No, we have a border with people that are trying to, by force, overrun it, because now we've finally figured out that a scam that they're running and enough people understand what's really going on here that letting them into the interior of the United States is no longer really an option. So what are they doing? Oh, they're, they're forcing this confrontation. But after all of the lies the left has told on this, why would you believe anything they have to say on immigration now? Why should we listen to a single word that Pelosi and Schumer and you know, the, the CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post fraudulence complex engages in. You know, why should we listen to any of their nonsense at all? They're not telling you the truth. They're not presenting the facts to you in order to illuminate the issue. They want to spread a narrative. And this is about power for them. 
And I, I wish conservatives would, would wake up a little more to the fact that this is it. This is the end game. If they can truly de facto eradicate our southern border, and if more caravans come, more people come, more illegals come, and then they're able, whether it's through you know lucky timing for them in terms of the presidential election in 2020, if they're able to get the House, the Senate, and the presidency at one time, the first thing they will do is amnesty, and the Republican Party is dead. It's, it's gone. It is finished. Because as I've been telling you, it's amnesty for $20 million. 11 is a lie. Oh, speaking of lies, another lie. Got a jam-packed show for your day, team, so stay with me. I'll be right back. Clearly, this goes back to Barack Obama's presidency when he created the DACA problem without ever trying to solve it. He said, literally, come to America illegally, bring your kids here illegally. He never tried to fix it. They never, in fact, when Pelosi had the House, they had a supermajority in the Senate. They never tried to bring a bill to fix the problem. They wanted a political issue. President Trump comes into office. Chuck Schumer initially was willing to work with him on a solution to DACA that included funding for the wall. Then the, the radical left went nuts and Schumer pulled that uh, deal off the table. We've tried to pass bills through the House to solve the interior loophole problems that you've cited so many times, as well as funding the wall. Not one Democrat. We've had two different approaches on this. So no matter where you are on this, there was a chance for you to vote to solve the problem. This is a legacy of the Obama administration. Again, with our media the way that it is, they don't spend any time telling anybody that, but it was the Obama administration, you will recall, that had the uh, lack of, well, I was going to say lack of wisdom, but actually, no, they've wanted this all along. Uh, They were looking for ways to allow there to be more people to come into the country who are leaving third world countries where they uh, have very, generally speaking, uh, low levels of, of education and, and uh, ability to speak English, and they go right to the front of the line, so to speak. That's been the plan. That's been the, all, all along what, what this has, has done for the left. This idea that if you show up at the border with a family unit, you must get let into the country. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that, I don't think the Honduran migrants came up with this on, on the, their own, by the way. Uh, there have been international NGOs pushing this. There have even been some of our foreign partners, you know, foreign national activity pushing this. And it's really a form of lawfare against the United States, right? Using the law as its own weapon of war against this country, in this case, a weapon against our immigration policies. And for those who are open borders extremists, which is increasingly just the Democrat Party, uh, this has been very effective. If it's just women and children on the border, why, why are we being so mean? You'll notice that they did this for a while as well with refugee policy, and they kept saying that there are, you know, there's no, there's never been a threat against the United States. We don't need to do extreme vetting, and then oh, actually, we let in a few people that either themselves or their immediate family members were terrorists. So that changed that conversation a little bit. But just like what they've done here, lie after lie. It's all women and children. There are no criminals. They're never going to get here anyway. They have no credibility anymore on this. But we need to fix it. We need to fix it, which brings us then to the conversation about funding and the wall and the shutdown. We will certainly get into that. And, oh, 
so much more teams. They would. She says that she is hoping that they, they give her a chance to work. Uh, that's what we've heard from this family. This family uh, hasn't really talked about asylum, per se. They're saying that they uh, don't even want to come to the United States. And definitely, they're going to be asking uh, for permission to work uh, for uh, three to four years. From what we've seen, the majority are actually men. Uh, and some of these men have not articulated that need for asylum. Instead, uh, they have talked about you know going to the United States for a better life and to find work. Whoa, somebody better code red that MSNBC reporter because what is he doing? Speaking the truth about the caravan? That is unacceptable over at MSNBC. You are not allowed to do that. You have to stick to the narrative. You have to stay with all of the lies, right? I mean, they've made it very clear where they stand on this stuff. They don't want people getting all, all uppity with the facts, much better for them to believe that this is a, a group of women and children fleeing certain uh, you know, violence, murder, extermination if they stay in Honduras, a country of 9 million people that is not currently at war. And if we take in these people, by the way, then why shouldn't we have to take in all the rest of the millions of Hondurans who would rather be in America than in Honduras? Does anyone want to even try to answer that question? No, you never get any any answers from Democrats on this stuff. You just get more of what they have been doing all along, which is essentially lying to you about all this. Here, let's just have some fun for a moment. Uh, remember when Jim Acosta got into trouble and, and that whole back and forth with Trump and it led to then the press pass revo- revocation, all that stuff, right? Remember all that stuff that happened there? And what Acosta said then, which this was now, what, two weeks ago, I just want to take a, a little go in the in the in the way back machine, if you will, for a second here. Now that we know what's happened, I mean, here here's here's what it sounds like with border uh, at the border crossing of San Ysidro in California with migrants rushing play clip three. Vamos, vamos. We, we are, you know, they're all saying, let's go, let's go. They're trying to overrun and climb over a wall. Remember when Acosta was giving that whole lecture to the president and the president wasn't having any of it? Here's just a little, just a, a little, little taste of what that was like. Play clip one. But your campaign had an ad showing migrants climbing over walls and well, so that's on. True. It, poor, it but they it, weren't actors. They're not going to be doing they that. They weren't actors. Well, no, it's true. Do you think they were actors? They weren't actors. They didn't come from Hollywood. Climbing over walls, your campaign ads, climbing over walls, they're not going to be doing that. Now, you could say that, well, Buck, he's he's making a uh, an analytic judgment there or, you know, he he's essentially speculating. But to that, I would respond, why the heck is a White House correspondent challenging the president with speculation? If he doesn't know what the heck he's talking about, maybe he should shut his dumb mouth. How about that? He says they're not going to be doing that. Well, we know, in fact, they are going to be doing that. So I would just note that, you know, maybe maybe a little bit of humility from the press going forward on this stuff would be would be in order. But that's well, we know that's that's not going to happen. Right? No way that's going to happen. And then that brings me to other places. You know, I've been telling you the the, the real 
Yeah, if there's anything you can take away from from this this part of the show so far, it's how much you have been lied to about this caravan, and that's really emblematic of how much we are all lied to about immigration all the time. We're constantly lied to about this. Lie after lie after lie. And remember when they were saying that, one, it's not an invasion, which I think when you have a mass of people and you have to deploy tear gas and they're overrunning your border, that's an invasion. And also the caravan, they were saying, is not even going to be a thing because it's not even going to show up. Play clip two. There is no invasion. There is no emergency. They're panicked about this fake invasion. For everybody out there that was telling me, no, it's a real story. We're worried about the caravan. They're coming and Trump's strong enough to... I, I go back to what I said about Martians coming to my backyard. Well, and he, and They're not coming. He talked and the about caravan's it. not coming. The leprosy's not coming. So does, does Joe Scarborough go on air and say, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I'm a buffoon. And my show is really about snarky uh snarky liberal sensibilities getting a platform to be shared with other snarky liberals so they can feel so superior in their stupidity because there's so much dumb stuff that is said on that show i mean that uh, of all the shows out there these days that are not on cnn i've got to say msnbc is among the the uh well morning joe is among the worst offenders for just being pathologically anti-Trump. Like they can be anti-Trump, that's fine, but they're anti-Trump to the point where you can't take anything they say seriously because they are unserious, right? They, they're not trying to present facts to people. They're trying to present a very specific and curated anti-Trump narrative. It's just anti-Trump propaganda. That's what they are doing. And, you know, they've been wrong about this for weeks and weeks and weeks. And do you see anyone saying, you know, mea culpa? Any of these big media talking heads who are saying, you know what, it, maybe they won't say they lied, but we got this one way wrong. Turns out the caravan was an issue. No, of course not. They're not going to do any of that. There's no honesty, no introspection you can expect from the media. They will just continue to do what they have always done, which is say what they have to say in the moment. That is of greatest, uh, of, of greatest use, utility for them. And then just move on and act like it never happened the moment that it goes bad for them. That's what they do. This reminds me of why also, you know, the the funding. We're going to talk more about the shutdown in the next hour. I will get into that. I, as you know, I tend to be pretty cynical about the whole shutdown issue. Here's what Lindsey Graham says about that. Play 17. Secure the border is going to be a bottom line for the president. He's got a $25 billion plan. I don't think he expects to get $20 million all at once. But he does expect to get $5 billion, like the House authorized, without a bunch of strings attached. They're not going to give him that money. Democrats are not. They'll do everything. That, they will go full Kavanaugh if they have to. They will throw out the decency rule book in a, in a heartbeat. They don't care. They have to stop Trump from getting that funding for the wall because... This is why there are so many lies about this. This is why they report so recklessly on the topic. They know deep down that if a wall is built and if that wall is beyond doubt proven to be effective, which will be the case, then it will be very hard for people to take liberals seriously on any of the other issues that they are running around screaming to be expert on, wise on, knowledgeable about. Uh, the, these people are, are just essentially engaged in 
mirroring what the rest of the so-called cool kids, smart set mob is saying. They're wrong on immigration and they're wrong on the wall. I predicted this on Sunday when I said that Mueller is not going to be able to use Manafort because he is a proven liar. And you can't put a liar on the witness stand, just like he's not going to be able to use Corsi. He's not going to be able to use anybody who he got to plead guilty to perjury or lying to an FBI agent. You know, the number of witnesses that he has that are credible are shrinking by the day. So I think the Dersh is right on this one. It's getting harder and harder for Mueller to, for anyone to really believe that Mueller's going to have a real chance at a, at a bombshell final act here because he's just jamming everybody up with perjury charges. Well, if you're going to throw perjury charges at everyone all the time, who, who are you going to have left to make your case that Trump is, you know, the guy who colluded with Russia, that Trump is a bad guy, and that Trump is, uh, you know, whatever it is. I don't even know what they think is supposed to happen or is going to happen. I, I just think that they're they're pretty delusional about this. Um, here's the latest. Though. I mean, Paul Manafort, according to Mueller, has repeatedly lied to federal investigators They're in breach of his plea agreement. This is according to the special counsel's office. And uh, prosecutors saying that Manafort's crimes and lies about a variety of subject matters relieve them of all promises they made to him in the plea agreement. Under the plea, uh, under the terms of the agreement, Manafort cannot withdraw his guilty plea. Defense lawyers disagreed that Manafort had violated the deal. In the same filing, according to the New York Times, they said Manafort had repeatedly uh, met with the special counsel's office and believes he provided truthful information. Um, so they've asked for a District of Columbia district court judge to set a sentencing date who has been in solitary confinement in a detention center in Alexandria, Virginia. Why is Manafort in solitary? What, what is that all about? But, you know, this is just shows you, think about, and I know this is not somewhere everyone's going to want to go with me, but hold on a moment. Let's just try. Think about what would have been the result of approaching Hillary Clinton's little army of crooked liars, people around her, people of Huma Abedin. You know, the Huma Abedin was married to, you know, the, uh, the perv Anthony Weiner. Uh, what would have been the result if, in the email investigation, they had taken the Mueller approach? They had had a bunch of, you know, right wing zealots who used the law in every way they could to destroy as many many people they could around Hillary. Does anyone really think that Hillary Clinton, she who is married to, oh, did not have sexual relations with that woman? Um, does anyone really think that there wouldn't have been charges? It's just so galling, this whole thing, to see that the way that justice is done if you're a Democrat versus justice if you are a Republican. It's so freaking annoying uh, because it's so obvious. It's so very, very clear that there's a double standard in place. Now, I'm hearing from some of my sources, some of my people here in the swamp, that the Clinton Foundation, there may be some Clinton Foundation bombshells that are dropped that, if my sourcing is correct, are going to raise the issue of not only 
were there no charges brought against the Clinton Foundation, but there was really no desire by federal authorities to even look into the Clinton Foundation when there was smoking gun level evidence of malfeasance. All the stuff that you would think was going on at the Clinton Foundation, people whose salaries were way too high, people who were abusing the funds of the organization for their own purposes. People, I mean, that was all happening. Of course, it was, we're talking about the Clintons. There, there is no level of uh, corruption that they will stoop to, uh, or that they will not stoop to, pardon me. And, and the idea that they weren't going to be charged, it, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. It has been all along. So we'll continue to follow the Mueller probe. I know that Jerome Corsi, WikiLeaks, Assange, all that stuff, we got my man Sagar and Jetty going to join us the next hour from the Daily Caller. Daily Caller broke a big story on that today. You got Roger Stone involved. I think Alex Jones went live for a while today, you know, with the whole whatever the heck Alex Jones is talking about. So clearly there's there's some interest in in, that, in those stories, too. And I will get to that. Just, just before we get into the economy and the White House press briefing that happened today, first time... First time uh, in the month of November, there's been a White House press briefing. Uh, Yes, Acosta was there. We'll get into it. And Sagar was there, so he can give us some atmospherics on what happened today at the White House. Uh, I thought this was, you know, we've got the Jesse Kelly situation playing out, and it was great. Uh, Jesse on radio yesterday. We had him on Rising this morning. He was on Tucker's show last night. Um, I'll be on Tucker's show tonight at 8 o'clock, those of you who want to see, 8 o'clock Eastern. So you can check that out. That'll be fun. Uh that's right, Fox News. You know how to find it. But th- there's this this slow recognition that is, I think, finally beginning to, you know, settle into people's minds here. There's this slow recognition that, oh, we really do have a problem here with the social media giants being overcome with progressive bias. Uh, and that's where you get story. not just the Jesse Kelly Twitter banishing that has happened, but also Google, which is the parent company for, I'm sorry, Alphabet, which is the parent company for Google, uh, introduced a feature for Gmail that automatically completes sentences for users as they type. Tap out I love you and Gmail might propose you, or, or rather tap out I love and Gmail might add in you or it. But users are out of luck if the object of their affection is him or her. This is a Reuters story today. Google's technology will not suggest gender-based pronouns because the risk is too high that its smart composed technology might predict someone's sex or gender identity incorrectly and offend users. Product leaders revealed to Reuters in interview. Um... Gmail product manager Paul Lambert said a company research scientist discovered the problem in January when he typed, I am meeting an investor next week. And Smart Compose suggested a possible follow-up question. Do you want to meet him instead of her? Yep. Uh, This is, that's right. This is what these companies, these mega giants of Silicon Valley are worried about. The possibility that they may, through essentially AI misgender somebody now how can this be such a terrible the the notion of misgendering given the complexities that the left offers up for gender shouldn't they then be willing to admit that you know it's really tough to get somebody's gender right 
In fact, I would offer to you that misgendering shouldn't be offensive at all anymore to the left because we don't know what anyone's gender is by looking at them. You used to think, oh, male, female, that's something that as a rational, functioning adult, I can probably tell just by looking at somebody, right? But no, no, not anymore. Somebody could be somewhere on the gender spectrum and you have no idea. So that being the case, until we can eradicate all pronouns, which I know there are some radicals on the left who that's what they want to do, shouldn't there be a much greater acceptance of misgendering? I mean, some of you might think to yourself, oh, well, you know, Bob in accounting, you know, you know, he's a he. You don't know. You don't know Bob's truth. You know, maybe Bob is hiding something from you all this time. So you can't say, hey, man, how you doing? And instead of just getting everybody in trouble for this, maybe we should just accept that we have no idea what anybody's gender is. Now, I know this is stupid, obviously, but the point I'm making here is this whole thing is dumb. Uh, but the left is they, they can't crawl out of this insanity. They've created it. And now they're stuck with it, including Google. Social media giants are full of left-wing bias. You know it's true, but there are some places you can go now where you don't have to worry about people shadow banning you, people deciding that you're violating the terms of service. It's all nonsense, right? Go to snippy.com. And if you've looked at snippy.com and left in the past, you need to look again. Thousands of my listeners have joined snippy.com expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. Snippy is an unbiased social media platform. It's all about conversation and community. Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators. So, you know, Snippy is a place where you can express your thoughts and share your opinions totally freely. All right. It's free to join, by the way, and open to everyone. So go to snippy.com. Let your opinion matter. No shadow banning, no suppression of conservative thought. Now with an updated user interface and exciting new features available in the App Store and for Android, Snippy, your new alternative social media. Oh, there's great disappointment there. Um, there's disappointment that it seems like GM would rather build its electric cars in China rather than in the United States. Um, we are going to be looking at certain subsidies regarding electric cars and others, whether they should apply or not. I can't say anything final about that, but we're looking into it again. That So GM is cutting a lot of jobs. All right. There's there's been some bad news for uh, for General Motors. And that is that they're going to cut 14,800 jobs in the U.S. and Canada. And they're going to stop production at a few North American factories. All right. So th this is the first time since the Obama era restructuring of General Motors that they've had this kind of this kind of moment of recognition, moment of reality that is that has hit them. Uh, this is going to reduce the cost that GM currently has by four point five billion dollars, they say, by 2020, which will free up money to invest in electric and self-driving vehicles. Uh, now, of course, the auto workers union has said this is callous and it's terrible and people are all upset about it. Uh, there, there's a lot going on here. Let, let me start with a few things. Let's go back and, and share a little history here, okay? The Obama administration, for purely political reasons, didn't allow General Motors to go bankrupt. The Obama administration realized, you know, the people that say, oh, Trump, he's so involved in different companies and picking winners and losers, and it's, he's an authoritarian on economics and all this, 
I don't like everything that Trump does when it comes to his rhetoric on different private companies. And I don't know. I don't agree with all those different things that he says. That said, Obama took and his administration took really severe action in order to save General Motors. And keep in mind, all it really did was use the taxpayers to bail out General Motors. And that then, because the government was involved, and because the government essentially took General Motors into receivership, I mean, the government was uh, was for a while, you know, the, the part owner of General Motors. What, what that meant was that they could do things like, for example, decide that they're going to break a contract with bondholders for General Motors, who are supposed to be taken care of first under contract, under the law, as part of a big giveaway to the United Auto Workers Union. That's right, auto workers unions, unions, Democrat power base. They were given a lot of special favors and attention by the Obama administration, uh, when in reality, what should have happened here is that you know, General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, all of them, all of them should have been allowed to go bankrupt because all that you had with the bailout was the continuation of an unhealthy corporate culture, unsustainable cost structure in place because of UAW, that's right, union demands. And now we've they finally run out of room to maneuver. I mean, now they have to go to this point where they're saying they're going to lay off 15,000 people, dramatically cut costs, and and take this whole, pardon the expression, great leap forward on electric cars and on, you know, on, on you know, self-driving cars, the cars of the future, if you will. Who knows if they're going to be good at that stuff? Like that, that's not, that's not been their, their strong suit in, in the past, that's for sure. But what's happened here is that they, uh, you know, they, they were able to continue on as they, you know, continue on with a lot of problems, a lot of structural problems in place, because there's just a, you know, General Motors is, it's like General Electric. General Electric had a, a diseased corporate culture that allowed it to become essentially largely a financial institution, not one that just makes light bulbs and things and planes and engines and, you know, whatever, or engines for planes. Uh, but also to become a major lender and become a financial wing. You know, GE Financial was a huge part of its of its uh, profit for a number of years. And, you know, people would say, oh, General Motors, I mean, General Electric, rather, this great American company, and, you know, it hasn't made the necessary, uh, hasn't made the necessary changes to its corporate culture, so that company's in terrible shape, right? General Motors had problems too, but the problem is really that, one, its strategy has been wrong. The cars that it built, people just don't want cars made by General Motors as much as they want other cars. Uh, and some of these auto worker, con- uh, auto worker contracts that they have because of the unions are just, the costs are too high. You know what General Motors did? And this is what the administration is pointing out with, with saying you know, maybe the subsidies will change. They decided to set up shop in China. To, they build General Motors cars in China. I know you could say to me, oh, Buck, but, you know, they, they sell those cars into the Chinese market. Yeah, but point is, they could be making them here and selling them in the U.S. market. They can't even sell U.S. cars in the U.S. market and make a profit on them. And they're having tremendous issues. You know, the, these other 
major, uh, you know, Japanese and, and Korean automakers, they've set up shop here in America. They're selling their cars in our markets. They're selling their cars and they're made here. But General Motors is set up overseas because, uh, yes, it wanted to get access into the overseas market, but it, it's also a question of they realize that the cost structure for them is better overseas. Uh, so, you know, this is, and by the way, the Volt is one of the ugliest cars. I've, I'm sorry if you're a Volt driver. Don't, don't get mad at me, but I think it's one of the ugliest cars I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, and, and so, you know, I think there's also just been some design flaws and, and design issues here. Um, but, you know, people have this nostalgia for the, you know, the great American car company and G GM has needed a, a really serious uh, come to Jesus moment for a long time. And I think it's, it's maybe having it now. I mean, might, might not be enough to really turn all of this around. But then there's, it's, it's not just general, but that was the big, the big news item from the week. Then you've got the overall economy. You've got China. I mean, Kudlow. A very charming fellow, this Larry Kudlow, is the head of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors. Um, he came out today as part of the White House press conference. He talked about the economy, talked about China. Let's get to some of that. Play uh, 13. U.S. is coming to the summit in very good shape. Our economy is quite strong. It's growing at 3% over the past year. Uh, second quarter was 4.2. Third quarter was 3.5, perhaps be revised upwards. We have a very strong holiday season. Uh, so-called uh, Black Friday, very strong. Uh, we've had tremendous uh, investments, business investments, energy investments, oil prices and gasoline prices coming down. That helps consumers, of course. We're in very good shape. China, not so good. I'm not here to critique uh, or second-guess the Chinese economy, but most observers uh, believe China to be in a slump whereas the United States is in a very strong, solid position going into this uh, summit. Yep. U.S. economy, uh, based on the numbers that we use to try to gauge these things, is still very, very healthy, still doing very well. Yeah, there's been a stock market correction. Trust me, I've, it's been a rough, a rough uh, two months for the Buckster over here, man. My, some of my portfolio has been getting... The good news is I, I, it's very little money. I just, I'm just more interested in investing than I am actually trying to make any real money because I'm um, certainly not uh, not flying around on the Freedom Hut Express in the sky. I don't have a G5 in my future. Uh, but, you know, the, the market has had a bit of a correction, but the market is not everything. It's just an it's an indicator among many others. I think what Kudlow is saying is, look, the U.S. economy is still good. And by the way, China's got issues. He's bringing this up because there's going to be at the G20 summit uh, sit down with Trump and and uh, and Xi and Xi Jinping, the Chinese premier. And they're going to look at this issue once again of, okay, where are we on trade policy? Where are we on the whole tariff, well, trade war, people are calling it, but the tariff situation? Because so far, yeah, there's been some downside to it. I was talking to you about GM just a moment ago. GM, for all the uh, United Auto Workers running up the, you know, running up the tab too high and, and the fact that the cars that they're making just aren't very good, uh, GM also says that they've got a billion dollars of additional cost because of steel prices, because of the steel tariffs. And that's real. You know, you got to factor that into all this. People want to say it's bigger than it is because it's, once again, an opportunity to bash Trump. But Kudlow said, look, there, there's going to, this is part of the process. There's going to be some pain here to get to a better place. And Trump is hoping we can all, including China, get to that better place, play 14. The president said... 
there is a good possibility uh, that we can make a deal, and he is open to it. But on the other hand, if these conditions I mentioned a few moments ago are not met, not dealt with, you know, the president has said, um, look, he's perfectly happy to stand on his tariff policies, which um, 10% last $200 billion, scheduled to go to 25%. That's not a certainty, but that's the schedule. And he has said uh, as recently as yesterday, the day before, if need be, if things don't work out in this, uh, this uh, U.S.-China summit meeting, he will uh, invoke uh, another 267-some-odd billion dollars in tariffs. Trump's doubling down on this. Not, not going to change, not going to back off one bit. Trump is very serious about seeing this thing through with China. I hope he's right. If he's wrong, we're going to talk about it here. But it's too early to know. One thing's for sure, though, Trump's not messing around. This is the one issue where I don't think he's going to blink no matter how much pressure people try to put on him. You're going to be doing a lot of online shopping over the holidays, and you're going to be exchanging all kinds of sensitive information on your computer, on your various devices. Are you safe? Do you know that your stuff is being protected? Because I've seen how easy it is to hack into things, and I've got some experience protecting individual information. And, you know, you need ExpressVPN if you really want to be safe online if you want to maintain your privacy because expressvpn has easy to use apps that run the background of my computer phone and tablet and protect me from hackers they do this by anonymizing my internet browsing by encrypting data and hiding my public ip address you need expressvpn okay it's less than seven dollars a month so easy to have so easy to set up protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com buck that's expressvpn.com slash buck for three months free with a one-year package. Again, visit expressvpn.com slash buck. there's any shutdown, it's on President Trump's back. First, left to our own devices, the Senate and House could come to an agreement. Second, um, the, Democrat, the Republicans are in control of the presidency, the House, and the Senate. A shutdown is on their back. Stick to the $1.6 billion. We're trying to get the president uh, the money he would like for the wall. That's part of the year-end funding discussion, uh, which is ongoing. That's one of the many things we've got to wrap up here at the end of the year. I don't think there's going to be a government shutdown. And I say that to you with a lot of frustration because I kind of wish there would be a government shutdown. I wish that the Republican Party was full of the courage of its convictions here. I, I wish that there was a, a willingness to go to the mat on this issue because it's not going to be not going to be a good thing for Trump to run for reelection in 2020 without having per, per, at least procured the funding for a wall. And there's the even more pressing issue of look at what is going on at our border. Uh, one of the the great lies of the Democrat left is that a wall wouldn't do anything, nobody wants a wall, a wall is irrelevant, a wall won't help. Well, you talk to Border Patrol, you talk to people that are actually on the front lines of trying to defend our sovereign borders, they'll tell you, oh no, as they've told me, a border would in fact help. A border is a good idea, is something that should be pursued. And it should have been pursued earlier than this. 
It should have been something uh, that the Trump administration and the Republicans were willing a long time ago, uh, a long time ago to, to fight for. So, you know, this is why also, and when I say a long time ago, I mean the last time that they had an opportunity. For example, the last time that there was an opportunity for them uh, to go to the go to the mat on this and have that shut down fight. And, you know, I would just also point out that it is, in fact, the law. It is the law to build a fence. Uh, there is something called the Secure Fence Act. How many people remember this? How many people remember that, that there was the Secure Fence Act and this was uh, passed many years ago? And we're told now that this is this is crazy, uh, that this is somehow completely out of left field. Uh, but the reality is that you've already had people. Public Law 109-367, the Secure Fence Act, it was passed with bipartisan majorities in 2006, received 283 votes in the House and 80 in the Senate. And it required the federal government, according to the Washington Examiner here, to build reinforced fencing at least two layers deep along about 700 miles of the border. It specified the areas in California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas where fencing would be installed. You know, th that's something you, you have to remember. A any barrier system isn't about preventing all entry, right? You don't have a fence around your house, for example because you think that no one can climb over the fence, but you may have a fence around your house so that, one, people know not to cross. Two, they can't just drive their vehicle right up to your house, right? It does give you some degree of protection. Three, they can't just walk. They'd have to actually climb, and depending on how high the fence is, it makes it harder for them. And that's what border security needs to be about, lessening. We have 2,000, apart from the migrant caravan, we have 2,000 arrests happening every day at the border of illegal crossings. Do the math. 2,356 days a year. It's a lot of... Oh, but then, but it's 11 million, Buck. It's 11 million. Sure it is. Because you have half a million people leaving the U.S. to go back to Mexico every year? Bull crap. No way. All right, that that's just... This is the we're, we're lied to about this issue constantly, constantly, just like I was saying, all the big lies we have been told about the caravan in the first place. Right. They, they lie to us about the wall specifically. They say a wall will do nothing, except we see that a wall is doing lots of stuff. A wall is, in fact, very useful. And that just brings me back to. Oh, and it wasn't it wasn't racist and terrible in 2006. Uh, and, and it wasn't for the whole border. Keep in mind, if there are just certain areas where there's a greater likelihood of a crossing, if there's just certain areas, 700 miles of fence, it would have made it harder. So maybe that 2,000 a day drops down. Maybe that 2,000 a day. And remember, there's a lot of people that aren't even being caught. It's more like, you know, half that number are caught trying to cross because a lot fewer people overall are crossing illegally into the country. But no one, no one ever talks about this. Uh, no one ever brings up that they just don't enforce the law on immigration. They don't enforce the law on building a fence. Building a wall, it's already there. They just don't do it. They don't fund it. You know, gosh darn it, they need to have a fight over this issue. Let's, 
Let's really have it out. Force the Democrats to show the American people that they are a party that is in favor of illegal immigration. They're in favor of open borders. But look, the shutdown, if it's going to happen, will be on December 7th. And I I think there's not going to be a shutdown. I, I think that Republicans will once again, once again, take the path of least resistance on this one. And the path of least resistance, as we all know, is going to be, oh, let's come up with a, you know, some kind of a temporary funding measure, a fancy legislative way to kick the can down the road, not take a hard vote, not deal with any of this difficult stuff. And then when the next election comes out, say, you know, build the dang fence, you know, everyone's going to all of a sudden be pushing for pushing for a wall to be built. And that's just not it's just not going to happen then. It's not going to happen at election time. So we'll see. I, I think the shutdown talk is is probably much ado about nothing. It usually is. Um, but in, in this context, uh, I'm hoping that I am wrong because we should shut the government down over this. Trump must get funding for the wall. Now is the time. 18 months ago and 25 or 30 million dollars ago, if you had said we came up with Carter Page as a possible suspect, he hasn't been indicted, or Mr. Papadopoulos, or now we're going after Jerome Corsi and Roger Stone because they might have been playing fast and loose with the truth. That's like saying P.G. Bar- P.J. Barnum exaggerated. If that's what this whole thing was about, it's become, I, I could call it a circus, but it's a tragic circus. And what you get the impression, Tucker, is that what you cannot get in quality indictments, you're trying to justify with a quantity of indictments. Right. They're indicting everybody. And- indicting everybody. That was Victor Davis Hanson talking about where the Mueller probe is right now i keep having people that will rattle off oh but there were 20 russians and manafort and all this and i say yeah none of this has anything to do with the trump campaign which is the only reason there's a special counsel but what is this whole corsi uh info wars roger stone debacle what is going on here we've got sagar and jetty with us he is the white house Reporter for the Daily Caller. Daily Caller broke big story on this today. Sagar, great to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. Uh, can you just walk us through here? What what the heck is going on? Jerome Corsi is now involved in this whole Mueller saga. Roger Stone's name has popped up again. What is happening here? Sure thing. So Corsi and Stone go back a long ways. Corsi is you know best known for pushing uh, birtherism. In the you know in the in the 2010s, he was also behind some of the Swift Boat stuff uh, during the Bush campaign. But anyways, basically, it it what Mueller is focusing on is communications between Roger Stone and Jerome Corsi with WikiLeaks. And so, what Corsi is now being current is being targeted by Mueller for is allegedly lying about an effort for a by Stone to get him to reach out to Assange about the forthcoming emails and some of his other communications with a conservative journalist in Britain who is allegedly in contact with WikiLeaks. And so it's, it's very, uh, very complicated, weird web here. And you also had this story today of uh, from The Guardian, a British, a British left-wing newspaper that says that Julian Assange met with uh, Manafort 
before uh, what was it in uh, in 2016 before the emails came out some people are having a hard time with this what, what's your take on it yeah I, i'm a very suspect of this story because for i noticed first of all that the dateline was in quito which is the capital of ecuador which suggests that you know maybe this information is coming out of an ecuadorian diplomatic source but there's been no confirmation on it both wikileaks and manafort have issued a flat denial. Now that doesn't mean that the story is not true, but that you know that's that that is definitely something uh, to be read into. And I think the the most interesting thing is that they actually edited some of the language in the story after it came out, where they said that an apparent meeting. They basically hedged the claims that the meeting had occurred within the story after it had co- uh, come out, and everybody went bananas over it. So I, I'm waiting for, for a bit more independent confirmation. I've been trying to confirm it myself. But, you know, both, I think it's very important to know that both WikiLeaks and Manafort saying that it is a completely flat-out false story. And it should be pretty easy for any U.S. government authority to know, you know, based on flight manifests or, or, what, or surveillance records, what have you, on whether he was in the Ecuadorian embassy or not. Yeah, I absolutely do not believe it is it is possible in any way that the U.S. government, the British government would not know about a meeting between Manafort and Julian Assange, who is living in a tiny room. I mean, I actually interviewed Assange, uh, I don't know, two years ago now from the Ecuadorian embassy, meaning that I connected with him online and we did an interview for a podcast. And I was like, what's it like over there, dude? He's like, uh, there's not a lot not a lot to do here, not much of a party going on. <laughs> I mean, talk about living under under a microscope. The moment he steps out of that embassy, they're going to arrest him. Everyone knows that. So he's been living in this diplomatic immunity space uh, for a while. And, and, and essentially, or not diplomatic immunity, well, the immunity of, of the building. And, you know, people are now saying, oh, at just the right time, we get this story that breaks that there might have been this meeting, and we all know what this is about, right? It, it, this is how the so the the alleged collusion could have happened. You have Manafort saying to Assange, "Hey, get these Hillary emails, or, or get there weren't even Hillary's emails, though." You know, Sagar. One of the problems I have with this, it's not even a good evil plan, right? It's not even a good bad guy <laughs> plot, right? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, Buck. I mean, he lives, like you said, in this tiny room in the Ecuadorian embassy. The idea that that would stay secret for over two, two and a half years just seems patently absurd. And then if you go down, you know, if you go down the road on, on that it, in terms of alleged foreknowledge or whatever, even even let's say let's go back to Jer- Jerome Corsi. He was thinking, according to his own emails and draft records, that the, this was stories about like the Panama Papers in relation to John and Tony Podesta, which, of course, that's absolutely nothing to do with what ended up coming out. So it really does seem like a lot of these guys were just trying to guess on what sort of so-called damaging information was out there, and then WikiLeaks did end up dropping it. And then, you know, some weird characters both either tried to claim credit or they were, they just used it as they would any oppo dump in a campaign. You know, I, I interviewed Roger Stone a few months back, and, and he was – Basically, like, yeah, I might get, I might get prosecuted. I was like, wow, he's he's very insouciant for a guy who might be heading to the federal prison. <laughs> yeah, I, I talked to Roger quite a bit. Uh, Roger Roger is convinced that the Mueller team has it out for him and that they're going to try and indict him. 
And he should probably be pretty scared because if you look at what's going on with Jerome Corsi, you have a guy. So Corsi deleted all of his emails. And so then in the course of an interview, he was asked about something and he said, to the best of my recollection, I did not do X. Then they produced an email showing that he had done that and they allowed him to revise his statement. What they're trying to nail him with now is lying to the FBI. And he's saying, no, I didn't lie. I just didn't have the records in front of me, and I didn't remember this email that I had sent over two and a half years ago. And so if you look at the, you know, just the technicalities that they are getting people on in this case, you know, Roger, you know, I think the president said uh, the president said one of the reasons that he won't sit down with Mueller is because if he claimed it was a cloudy day and it was actually blue skies, they would indict him for lying to the FBI. Well, there is there is a, a judgment that comes into all this. There there are some gray areas, and if you have a prosecutor that really does want to make an example of you, I mean, one you know one situation that folks should be reminded of is is what happened uh, during the whole Scooter Libby debacle. I mean, people keep saying, and, and I've had to point out to some very prominent uh, lefty news anchors, they keep saying that he was indicted for revealing the name of a of a CIA officer uh of a covert employee of the cia that's what happened scooter libby no he was he was prosecuted for lying about a conversation with a journalist who already knew about this person's identity uh which is what you know never gets brought up in this context at all so you know what is a lie worthy of prosecution and what is somebody misremembering is a gray area you know sagar you were there today in the west wing uh, i assume during the press conference first one in a while Yes. Yeah, I was. I was there uh, first one in the last month. Uh, This subject did come up, but Sarah Sanders, you know, she stuck by it. She said there's been no collusion. The president's not really worried uh, about whatever this man, this latest development is. And that when the Mueller report comes out, he's also not worried because he knows he didn't do anything wrong. Anything that was uh, of surprise to you from the press conference? What what was it? What's it like having Acosta back in the room after all that mess? Yeah, I mean, uh, Jim asked uh, several questions as he normally does. He, t- he takes quite a bit of time. Uh, uh, he likes to, he likes to get several follow ups in there. But you know, overall today was actually pretty run of the mill. Lots of policy. Uh, there was only a few Mueller questions. There wasn't a. It, usually, what happens whenever something's going on with the Mueller investigation is you get about twelve different uh, versions of the exact same question with the same answer. But, you know, today was only 14 minutes, and, and, and most of the briefing was talking about the president headed down to Argentina for his G20 summit. So, yeah, you know, surprising amount of policy that was, uh, that was talked about today. Sagar and Jetty, everybody. Follow him on Twitter. Also, uh, read his latest at uh, Daily Caller, dailycaller.com. Uh, he's a White House correspondent. Sagar, great work as always, my man. Come back soon. Thanks, Buck. All right, team, let's let's talk a bit about the uh, the economy coming up here in a moment. Cause a lot of talk about that today from the White House. We'll get to that in just a moment. Even Obama's undersecretary for science didn't believe the radical conclusions of the report that was released. And you have to look at the fact that this report is based on the most extreme model scenario, which contradicts long established trends. It's not based on facts. It's based on it's not data driven. We'd like to see something that is more data driven. It's based on modeling, which is extremely hard to do when you're talking about the climate. Our focus is on making sure uh, we have the safest, cleanest air and water. And the president's going to do exactly that. There is this climate change 
hysteria out there, as you know, something that that we I, I try not to obsess about it in response to the left's obsession, because if you're listening to this show, if you were a climate change alarmist, you probably wouldn't be able to listen to me because you would think that I was essentially hoping for the destruction of the planet, which tells you a lot about how crazy climate change alarmists really are. Uh, you know, I, I managed to sit down today with a a woman who's basically from the Obama administration. She worked, uh, I forget what she was doing, but she was all about how Trump is, is removing all of these regulations, and it was it's just so bad he's removing all these regulations because we need clean water. And I said, okay, what's one regulation he's removed that has made water less clean? Tell, tell me what the regulation is. And oh, and, I, and a lot of sort of well, the general waterway treaty, blah blah blah. A lot of a lot of a lot of claptrap. And then I managed to ask. I said, okay, so Trump's gotten rid of tons of regulations. Is there one regulation that Trump has gotten rid of that you agree with him on? And this is a person, mind you, an Obama administration uh, official um, appointee. This is somebody who all she does is is promote de or promote regulation, not deregulation. Couldn't come up with a single one. Not one. There's not one regulation that Trump, and, and this is her life, is to study regulations, apparently. And couldn't come up with a single one. I'd sit here and think to myself, you know, this is the problem with libs. They, they don't really think through their arguments. They're just always in advocacy mode. And on climate change, you see this in a way that it's just breathtaking in its arrogance and its stupidity at the same time. Uh, this idea that climate change is going to destroy our economy, uh, this is nuts, I, I don't know how else to put it. I mean, if if people really believe this, then we should be taking radical, dramatic steps to destroy our economy today, because that's what it would do. Uh, that's what it would take in order to prevent this climate change catastrophe from actually happening. Here's the Wall Street Journal take on this. Uh, headlines warned of economic doom after the U.S. government released its fourth national climate assessment last week. Yet a close reading of the report shows that the overall economic impact of human-caused climate change is expected to be quite small. Projecting human-caused changes in the global climate is a major scientific challenge. Estimates of the temperature increases due to rising greenhouse gas concentration are uncertain by a factor of three. Trying to make projections for a particular region compounds the uncertainty. Estimates of the economic impact are less certain still, in part because as yet unknown modes of adaptation will mitigate the effects. The report's numbers turn out to be not all that alarming. The final figure on the final chapter shows an increase in global average temperature of 9 degrees Fahrenheit would directly reduce the U.S. gross domestic product in 2090 by 4%, plus or minus 2%. That is, the GDP would be about 4% less than it would have been absent human influences on the climate. That worst, worst case estimate assumes the largest plausible temperature rise and only known modes of adaptation. My friends, we're told the economy is going to be in deep trouble because of a 4% projected worst case scenario drop in 2090. And let me say, and I tell you this with absolute certainty. If I am wrong, you can show up and slap me right across the face in 2090. Let me tell you this right now. I, I guarantee you, I guarantee you this is true. 
Nobody who is talking about what the economy will look like, where it will be, what we are doing in 2090 has any idea what the heck they are talking about, period, full stop. They have no, I mean, this whole exercise is laughable. It is preposterous because, first of all, based on real math, real numbers that we can count, and this maybe should keep you up at night, based on the amount of debt we are compiling in this country year in and year out, we are going to have the destruction of U.S. fiat currency decades before this 4% drop in GDP in 2090. And I wouldn't even pretend to be able to tell you what decade, but it's going to happen, right? I mean, does anyone really think that you can have fifty trillion dollars of U.S. national debt and doesn't doesn't really do anything? That's eh, fine. They'll pay that back. Someone's going to get paid back the fifty trillion. You know, we're we're getting there. Oh, one more big recession, one more big spending Democrat administration. All of a sudden, you find yourself in a place where oh, wait a second. Oh, that's right. Now we got to spend another ten trillion, which is what Obama spent over his uh, eight years. Ten trillion in now that's not all spending, that's in debt in addition to the spending offset by revenue year in and year out. But but this is what I mean. I saw a CNN explainer, which is a fancy way of saying explainer. I saw a CNN explainer where they were like looking at, at the year twenty one hundred and how there could be I think they said it was a ten percent drop in GDP by twenty one hundred. I sit here and I think to myself, are these people idiots? Or is this just a, a cult of stupidity? Who who really thinks that our economic projections in the year 2100 from today are valid in any way, shape, or form? I mean, we who even knows that we're going to have a planet in 2100? I mean, don't even get me started on all that, right? I mean, we could have a nuclear, nuclear holocaust, all kinds of bad stuff. But think about what the country looked like economically in 1960 all right so 50 years ago and now not even 50 we got to go back 70 years right so think about what the what what the financial prospects were for america and for all this stuff back in 1940 and think about what they will be like in what they are like today these people have no idea what they are talking about this is lunacy in this climate change report not only in 2018 should we be introspective, we should move beyond introspection to reconstruction and figuring out a way to link our ideals and our practices. And in Mississippi, with the history, the ghosts of Mississippi, the blood of Mississippi from its rivers where Emmett Till died, where Medgar Evers died, where those three civil rights workers, two Jews and a black person died, yep. we have to come to grips with it in 2018. And the only way to do that is to take a harder look at what we've been able to do and not not able to do and then put you know roll up our sleeves so to so to speak and work together cindy hyde smith is a racist a white nationalist a white supremacist a racist a white nationalist a white supremacist that, that's being said on cable tv about a woman who is probably going to be the next senator from the state of mississippi uh, but that passes for for democrat analysis these days that passes for a an astute assessment of what's going on in, in our national national politics you know we're, we're going to find out here soon uh what's you know what, what's going on i mean this is going to be a close a close race we've got the election uh coming the results coming in tonight i will not be able to tell you who has uh won 
because of the timing of when we're on air and when the results will be in. But they're saying this one's going to be tight. You've got Cindy Hyde-Smith up against uh, Espy, Mike Espy, who, you know, while on the one hand they're saying that, that Hyde-Smith is such a racist, that guy, uh, that's, I forget his name, Michael Eric Dyson, uh, he, he is he is not a nice fellow. He always everything is about how everybody else is racist, and so they love him at CNN and MSNBC because that's all they ever want to talk about is how everybody who disagrees with them is racist. But this guy Espy, when you look into his uh, his background a little bit, you know we're we're, t- we're told about how you know Hyde Smith said this one thing that you know in the context of Mississippi was insensitive, and all right, all right fine. How many of you have been hearing from the media, for example, that Mike Espy was indicted on, I think it's 14 counts. And while he did, he did, in fact, manage to uh, evade, or rather, he he managed to beat the prosecution. uh, The fact is, he was involved in some very shady stuff back in the day and had to step down from his from his post. Uh, you know, Mike Espy is somebody who has a a, ch- a checkered past in in politics. Uh, he was acquitted in this gifts case. OK, so he was the former agriculture secretary and he was forced out in 1994 by people saying that he he took gifts from lobbyists, essentially 30 corruption charges brought against him. And a lot of other people, by the way, uh, w- went to prison for this. 15 convictions, $11 million in fines. And SB's indictment was that he took $35,000 in, in gifts. Uh, so, you know, he, he he's a guy who, how, how many of you have heard this about him? Oh, the answer is, I'm sure, very few, because the media is not talking about this at all. He was acquitted, but this guy wants to talk about ethics. Hmm. This guy wants to talk about good leadership. I think that it's only fair to point out that uh, he was certainly surrounded by a lot of people who were engaged in some really corrupt, nasty stuff. And uh, here here you have, you know, I just think that's necessary background that we should all know. But they just want to call Cindy Hyde-Smith uh, racist. That That's the whole point of everything that, that they're putting on TV now on the left, all the Democrat stuff. They're trying to find a way to trash this woman and and that's that's the purpose of of their coverage. By the way, speaking of just calling people racist, and that's their form of of an argument, uh, and and the the smear tactics that you get, you've got this guy, um, Max Boot, who maybe I shouldn't give him any more airtime on this show because he's someone who has embraced his status as a turncoat to all that he once believed in. You know, he used to be a stalwart neoconservative and and considered himself a conservative. Now he goes on on CNN and finds himself trashing not just Trump but all the people that support Trump and all the ideas beyond. And, and you you've never really made the full break with the right until you're willing to just be a uh, a, a complete shill for the climate change alarmists. You have to be running around saying the, the same stupid talking points about how science is settled on this and and all the rest of it. Here, here's what Max Boot now does because he's an anti-Trump, never-Trump jerk. Play twenty. 
Okay, you're trying to filibuster because you're embarrassed by what I'm going to say, which is that you and Gage... No, I'm embarrassed to sit here with you, Max. I'm embarrassed to sit here with you and with your sanctimonious That's what I'm embarrassed about. Okay, I'm embarrassed by your filibuster, and I'm embarrassed by the fact that you will not call out this blatant racism on the part of Sidney Hyde-Smith and Donald Trump. You offer this kind of values-neutral horse race analysis, and you refuse to condemn the descent into bigotry of the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln. This is a disgrace to what the Republican Party has stood for for so much of its history. The Republican Party has stood for racism, Max? That's really interesting because the Democrats are the party of slavery, segregation, and Jim Crow, but the Republican Party stands for racism? This is, this is a recurring theme, though. Find something that a politician says that maybe is... Uh, you know, that was ill-advised, but with no ill intent, and turn it into, oh my gosh, this person is so racist. They're the most racist racist ever. And that's all they want to say. Oh, I mentioned the climate change thing, because Boot, that was last night. Remember, he's one of the, look, he's a, he's a traitor to conservatism. And so he's going on TV, doing calling the Republican in Mississippi a racist, calling the whole GOP racist. And uh, now he's written in the Washington Post <laughs> within 24 hours of that appearance. I was wrong on climate change. Why can't other conservatives admit it too? see, this is what I mean. He, this is how you prove your fealty to the to the left. You, you have to go with a, there. Are, there are a few things that you have to do. You, you have to say that climate change is man-made and a serious problem and, and, and bend the knee on that. Uh, and you have to be willing to call everybody who disagrees with you racist. This is what the Democratic Party does now. This, this is how it functions. Doesn't make arguments, makes accusations, makes allegations. And Boot and others who are uh, essentially bootlickers of the left now, it, it's just pathetic. It's really... Sad in a sense to see, but I, I guess they hate Trump so much that they are willing to tear down everything that they have ever stood for in their adult lives and their professional lives in order to score some cheap points against Trump now. Or maybe it's just to pay the bills. You know, Maybe I'm just taking this to uh, an ideological place when it's really just an economic thing. They, they just want to make that cash, want to make that money. You know, And CNN's paying them and Fox isn't, so they'll go on CNN and trash conservatives, but... And boots a disgrace. I know it's the holidays, and if you want to give the gift of freedom, my friends, you can do that via Black Rifle Coffee. The freedom to drink delicious coffee every day, just like I do. In fact, you can sign up for the coffee club, which means you'll get it sent to your door all the time. You can sign somebody else up for the coffee club at Black Rifle, and then you'll never have to think about getting coffee again, because it'll come right to you, all right? So this is the gift of great tasting coffee made easy, and in the process, you're supporting a veteran-owned and operated company. I love Black Rifle. I'm making Black Rifle converts left and right. It's also a company with awesome guys running it. Go check it out. The best tasting, best coffee imaginable, Black Rifle Coffee. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and receive 15% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com dot com slash buck for 15 percent off again everybody listening just in time for the holidays black slash buck many of you know that i have friends at the the federalist and and try to have a pretty good rotation of guests from the federalist.com who come on to this show uh, people like 
Ben Dominich, who's the uh, co-founder of it, Sean Davis, Molly Hemingway, uh, Inez Felcher. There's there's a whole crew over there that I think does really excellent work, and uh, and I really like getting in the mix on radio and on TV. This is one of the best Federalist pieces I've read in in a while, though. It comes from someone named Chris Bray, who's a former infantry regiment, uh, sorry, infantry sergeant in the U.S. Army and has a history PhD from UCLA. Uh, so really, obviously impressive in terms of his credentials, which is necessary because he's about to, in this piece, essentially pull apart the notion that you can judge people by their credentials. Uh, that's kind of the irony of this. He wrote this, uh, Our culture war is between people who get results and empty suits with pristine credentials. And there's a lot of really profound stuff in here. He, he goes right to the heart of what I think is the the real animosity that you have, particularly among among journalists toward Trump, and that is that their status is threatened. Their, you've often heard me say that their sense of self is threatened, meaning that their sense of their own importance in the world, their own, uh, the, the, the necessity that society has for them, that is all in doubt because Trump comes along and casts doubt over it. That's why the whole fake news issue does really bother places like CNN, even though their ratings overall are up in the Trump era. And it's because they like to think of themselves as the guardians of democracy. They, they like to think of themselves as the essential uh, protectors of you know, truth and, and liberty and freedom and all this other stuff, although they're generally pretty anti-liberty and anti-freedom in the press these days. Uh, but he goes through how throughout history, and he's got a PhD in history, there were different groups, whether it is the elites in Vichy France, who were, uh, I don't know why I just pronounced that weirdly, France, Vichy France, mais oui, bien sûr, uh, who were supposed to be running that country, who had all this fantastic schooling, or the elites in China, where your Confucian, uh, your Confucian scholarship reputation and, and skills, if you were a good Confucian scholar, then you were in charge of an area. If you were fantastic, you were in charge of a whole region. And, you know, if you were the best of the best, you were national administrator. And then the British showed up during the Opium Wars with guns and were like, guess what? We're, we're in charge now. And being a Confucian scholar didn't really matter anymore. The point here is that we have a society that is particularly obsessed with credentialing as shown by universities, but universities are not in any way good proxies or, or good sorting mechanisms for how capable and how, honestly, how worthwhile a person is professionally or personally. These universities have been so polluted with social justice uh, indoctrination and the liberal orthodoxies are so uniformly enforced at them that you can't really expect somebody who comes out of a, a certain school to be able to defend their point of view, to be impressive really in any way. Because there are a lot of different reasons why they take people too. Even the admissions process at these places is tainted, in a sense, by this left-wing, redistributive, intersectional, social justice ideology. Um, but I, I think he makes some really 
fantastic points in this. And, and here, here's one. He talks with the Obama administration and he writes, quote, staffing up new administration, Barack Obama hired Samantha Power, Cass Sunstein, uh, both professors, Professor Stephen Chu, Professor Christina Romer, and so on and so on. Donald Trump hired generals, CEOs, and governors, people who were credentialed by lives of action and management. This isn't disagreement. This is a difference of foundational premises. Um, he also says, for 40 years with... Ga oh, this is, this is the really most profound part of this, I think, the, that we do not separate people into a class system in this country anymore based on their ability or even their wealth. You know, usually you think of wealth as the, the thing that determines where you are in the strata. Now, of course, wealth does matter to, to some extent with all that. But to the, uh, to the issue specifically here of how people think of themselves within class structure, it's really about virtue signaling and postures and cultural positions. Here's what he writes. Quote, for 40 years with gathering uniformity of purpose... Our credentialing institutions have, have taught postures rather than skills, attitudes rather than knowledge. This isn't invariably true, and many fine scholars have taught many excellent practitioners, but the overarching trend is toward training in intellectual and psychological uniformity toward the world of excellent sheep. The hollowing out of our credentialing institutions has been abundantly clear for years, in well-known examples like the discussion of rape law at Harvard and, quote, it is not about creating an intellectual space tantrum over at Halloween costumes at Yale. What credentialing institutions teach is mental rigidity, intellectual cowardice, and fear of disagreement. They narrow the mind and constrain the ability to act. Our elites largely can't put the wet stuff on the red stuff. It's referring to firefighters and the most important part of their job because it's triggering and unsafe to mention. This is, this is really true. I mean, these places, this is why also you see such a, uh, there, there's such a, a uniformity of belief coming out of them. Uh, this is why when you ask, well, why are so many people that go to Ivy League schools liberals and so many of them really liberal? The answer is because they're taught to be liberals because that's what these schools are teaching people now. And they're also constantly picking up from those around them that if you want to be considered smart, worthwhile, socially acceptable, and elite, you have to adopt certain postures, certain premises, and that's what they're spending a lot of time focused on, especially uh, at, the, at the undergraduate level, but increasingly at the graduate level. People ask me, why, you know, why didn't you get an advanced degree? I thought about it, for example. I thought about getting an MBA. I thought about at one point even getting a master's degree in international relations, but the answer is I, I didn't think that I needed one. Uh, the answer is also that it was going to be really expensive and I didn't want to take on a whole bunch of debt because I don't like debt. I don't want to take on debt. I would rather live simply and frugally than owe somebody and live my life wondering if I'll be able to pay them back. Uh, but this is the real, the credentialing, uh, the, the, the fall of credentialing institutions in the public's eye is one of the main, now you could say to me, Buck, Trump went to Wharton. Yeah, that's all true. But on the right, there's a greater acceptance of who you are is really a compilation of the choices you make and what you've done. That's who you are. Who you are is not a resume. It's not a sheet of paper that I went to this place and this place and this place. I mean, I can't tell you how many people uh, when I was in government 
I would see a resume and, oh, I'm talking Rhodes Scholars and speak this language and that language. And, and then you meet them and you're like, this person is just not used to thinking rigorously about anything. This person has learned to play within a certain system in order to advance himself or herself. And that system skews to the left. And that's really what you pick up from all this. That's what you pick up from these institutions. I mean, the basic legal training, for example, of a law school is pretty much the same everywhere, according to all my friends who have gone to law school. It's just a question of the elite status that you attain from going there, but also how you talk about these things, the way that you view them, the way that you present yourself. A lot of this is just about flash. It's certainly not about substance. And Democrats hate this stuff because ultimately they're the ones who are always trying to hold up their dominance at the academy as somehow evidence of their intellectual superiority. So in the Obama administration where you had all these professors, that, that's a perfect example of how the real world comes hard and fast to people who think that because they have a fancy sounding pedigree, everything's going to be easier. Uh, he ends this piece, Chris Bray. Again, I thought this was really good at The Federalist, and I would recommend it to you. I'll, I'll put it up on Facebook. Uh, in short, Trump declines the authority of the cultural sectors that most assertively claim it. That's the conflict, and that's why it's being played in a relentless tone of hysteria. There are credentialing authorities and credential-holding elites who can see the path to their own obsolescence. Like the Empress Dowager, they will not go quietly. Yeah, that's right. That is why there's such a tantrum going on. Trump is a threat not just to them politically, but to their sense of who they are, how elite they are, how special they are. And they can't abide that. Oh, hello, the foreign secretary. I, I saw this on the BBC Twitter account earlier today. And I got to say, I, I like Boris Johnson. I think he's a pretty interesting guy. I've heard him say some really good stuff in the past. I don't follow British politics closely because I got my hands full on this side of the pond. But but this was I thought this was pretty great today. This is this is Boris Johnson trying to do a little visit promo video as Foreign Secretary, their equivalent of Secretary of State. Roll it. The Foreign Secretary has to do a quick bit of filming for his official Twitter feed. Okay, yeah. Hi folks, Boris Johnson, Foreign Secretary. I'm here in Lisbon, in Portugal, to celebrate what is the oldest alliance and friendship in diplomatic history going back to 1386, going forward through the Napoleonic Wars, through to the Second World War, when, of course, this was a, a place that uh, was... Uh, I'm trying to think what happened in the Second World War. <laughs> what do we do in the Second World War? It was, it was neutral, wasn't it? The Azores. What do we do in the Azores? <laughs> oh, I love it. The, the Azores. What, what, what did we do in the Azores? We, we, we were neutral. Oh, 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 yes, neutral, neutral, that's right. Oh, Portugal, not really... Not really our best ever ally. Not not the best I've ever seen. Not not in fact our ally at all in the Second World War. Oh, that's, that's quite that's quite strange, isn't it? Okay, let, let, let's get back to it. Boris Johnson, Foreign Secretary, take two. Boris Johnson, I'm the Foreign Secretary. I'm here in Lisbon. Portugal is our fourth biggest trading partner. Trading partner. We, are, we are Portugal's fourth largest. Portugal is not our fourth largest. Wait, what, 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 what do you mean? P Portugal's not not our fourth, fourth la third largest, fourth largest. What, what's going on here? P Portugal, uh, oh bloody hell! Take three. Hi, folks. Boris Johnson. I'm here in Lisbon. James Bond himself was said to have been born in Estoril, and today, James Bond. 
Nazi. He wasn't born. Well, you can't put one to your right. No, 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 I know. And then correct the idea, me. The idea for James Bond was born. The idea for, the James, idea Bond for born. James Bond was born. Oh, oh, come on. What, what, do you, what do you mean, the idea for... I mean, James Bond is written right there in the script, sir. James Bond, born here. Idea, James Bond, a person, at least in literary fiction, sir. Oh, oh come off it. I love it when British guys fight, man. It was, that was great, you know. But, 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 but the idea, sir, the idea... What, what do you mean? It says right here in my briefing book, James Bond, born, born in Esteru. Man, life would be so much easier if I had a British accent. It really would. People would listen to me on all the different cable networks and just say, wow, that guy's so smart. Listen to his British accent. Even if I said things like, well, James Bond, born here. In fact, I believe he went to preschool just down the street. He was quite a rambunctious young fellow in his early days. Yeah, or he's a fictional character. It's all pretty much the same thing. Oh, we got one more take from the foreign minister of the UK here. It's a great friendship. It's a great partnership. It's built on shared values, and we're going to take it forward. All right? Good. Thank you. Thank you. Mic off. The t oh, 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 all right, then. We, we can finish. Oh, we're all finished. Oh, great. Fantastic. Oh, that was fun stuff, man. People don't realize how much social media is changing the way that we see each other as well. I mean, I, I've been telling you for a while that the, the biggest problem with credibility for journalists is not even the fake news that they peddle. It's that because of their social media accounts, we are all now able to see just who they really are and what they think and what their biases are. And they act like that doesn't mean anything, or, or perhaps we're all too dumb to figure out who they are based on their social media profiles. But with politicians too, you know, every, everybody is now a pundit. I mean, everybody has instantaneous publication access they can just decide that they're going to share a thought and that thought if it has enough interest from people can then go viral so it's it's a bit of a game-changing experience but you have even politicians now walking around with their staffs trying to come up with clever things to say on snapchat and just i'm going to just say this one time i don't understand the dog filter thing on snapchat or the bunny filters or whatever the animal filters no one looks good with an animal filter over their face. This is why Snapchat, I think, is a company that's not long for this world, because everyone who's below the age of 30 is going to figure out, oh, when I put the weird dog face filter on, I look like a dog face, which is not good. Mic drop. Buck is out. Roll call coming up. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for Roll Call. All righty. Roll Call is where it's at, folks. Always like to hear from you at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. So please do send me your thoughts, your insights, your pithy, remarkable quips. Paul kicks us off today. Hey, Buck, I've heard some talk regarding the FISA mess about abuse of classification authority. During your time as an analyst looking at classified material, what percent of documents would you guess didn't really need to be classified? Also, do you think this kind of thing happens deliberately for CYA reasons, or is it just lazy swamp dwellers taking a shotgun approach and just classifying huge batches of documents without bothering to go through them? So sorry you have to live in the swamp, 
as a former denizen of Fairfax, I can honestly say you are taking one for the team. Shield tie, Paul. Uh, Paul, excellent questions. Let, let me try to take these in order. Uh, do I think that there... See, see, there's mostly overclassification, which is a huge thing in the government. I mean, they, they classify everything. You know, they, they would classify a ham sandwich if, if nobody stopped them from doing it. And most of that is a combination of laziness and better safe than sorry attitude. And I can understand with some things, a better safe than sorry attitude certainly is is the way you want to go. But when you are talking about taking that approach to pretty much everything, then you're really misusing the classification system because then that also prevents transparency. So people can't get access to government documents that they should have access to. And it also means that people like me, when I was in the government and had a top secret clearance, take a much more eh, no big deal attitude when, you know, there was stuff. I mean, I remember being in the CIA and coming into contact with information that was kind of, wow, oh my gosh, this is really, this is really serious. This is really sensitive. Uh, and you have, and, and it's not that often that that would happen, but you can imagine that it certainly does. And you remember when it does, when, when it, you're the person it happens to. So that's, that's a part of it. Uh, as to the CYA aspect, well, yes, there's definitely overclassification. In fact, we saw some overclassification already in a very high profile setting with the whole Mueller probe and all of the uh, FBI uh, and and deep state shenanigans around it when you had McCabe, who was the deputy director and at one point acting director of the FBI, McCabe had a $70,000 conference room table bought for him for the executive directors or for the uh, rather the director's conference room. And he, he just didn't want that information out there. And that's all that was. So they classified it and later it came out. So it's really all of the above. Uh, lots of different reasons. But overclassification is a big problem. And as to the swamp, yeah, this place does not grow on me. In fact, I really do look forward to this show every day because it's like I, I get to connect to my folks, my people, uh, my like-minded patriots. And that's one of the beauties of this show is that it's almost like I'm sending up the distress beacon every time the show starts. You know, save me, Team Buck, save me, because I am, I am deep behind liberal lines here in D.C. And you know, outside of Fox News, the White House and Republican congressional offices, you are in you are in hostile territory here as a conservative. Uh, Steve writes, Buck, comma, Steve, well put. Another Steve writes, a crazy Uncle Echo of your sentiment uh, regarding media matters. Note the spelling the people there have such repulsive personalities. I'm convinced that it's an employment requirement that the only action they get is online. They don't have to worry about birth control uh, from Steve. Steve, I, I think Media Matters is a detestable organization. I think that Move On uh, is a detestable organization. And I really mean this. Apart from disagreeing with their politics, I just think that people who work for those places should think long and hard about what they're doing with their days, you know, what they're doing with their lives at this point, because they're organizations that exist to smear and undermine and destroy and have no, there is no good faith. Uh, no one at Media Matters operates in good faith. It is essentially 
a media character assassination squad that abuses the tax code, by the way, in order to be a 501c3 nonprofit. Peter writes, Buck, I'm a big fan and wanted to let you know your calm, reasonable, and reasoned voice for all things pro-USA is truly inspirational and also is saving this country by getting the word of logic and history out there. You make me laugh routinely. Your quip months ago about the Southern Poverty Law Center chipping away at the load-bearing walls of Western civilization had me giggling for days. When we can laugh at such tragedy, life is much better. Shields high. Peter, thank you so much for the very kind and uh, and encouraging note. It, it really does mean a lot. And uh, please keep listening to the show. Please tell some friends about it, too. Remember, they can always download it, folks. And our downloads are going up earlier than they were before. So you usually should be able to listen to this show by 7 Eastern time uh, because some of our guest interviews and some other things were able to uh, get done in advance. So you, you can you can usually get the show by, you know, earlier than you used to. I can I can tell you that much uh, earlier than you used to be able to. Josh writes, I love your show, but I'm done wasting my time. I pull off the highway on my commute home to message or tweet you no more. Have a great life, Sexton. Um, well, Josh, I, I don't I don't know, man. I mean, I, I just got to your message now. Thank you for saying you love my show. Please keep listening to the show. We just we get a lot of messages in the inbox and I can't get to them all on air. Or the whole show would just be people writing to me on roll call. Maybe we could do a whole Friday like roll call extravaganza. That would be kind of fun for the end of the year. Um, maybe that's uh, an idea. But Josh, come back, my friend. Listen to me on your commute home. Don't give up. The Freedom Hut is here for you. We're just a little understaffed and and scrambling. John who has a, a, a very a very groovy last name. John writes, Your mention of people who want to have limbs removed reminded me of this song as recorded by Billie Holiday. All of me, why not take all of me? Can't you see I'm no good without you? Take my lips, I want to lose them. Take my arms, I never use them. Wow, that's intense. Uh, you took the best, so why not take the rest? Baby, take all of me. Uh, John... Thank you for sharing. Uh, I'm actually, I'll tell you, a fan of Nina Simone, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald. Um, I go through phases where I'll I'll listen to a lot of of that genre of of music from that that period of time. Uh, Nina Simone in particular, I've always actually really enjoyed listening to. Uh, And and Ella Fitzgerald kind of just, even though some of the songs are very... uh, kind of emotional and sad. Ella Fitzgerald usually puts me in a good mood. Uh, Mary writes, can you tell Mr. Sexton thanks for the giggles each time he mocks Hillary's voice? Well, Mary, you're welcome. That's about as close to Hillary's voice as we can get tonight. Uh, But she says you're welcome. So there you go. Mark writes, Buck, shields high. Shouldn't the Democrats be loudly and actively warning all immigrants trying to come here to stay away? You don't want to come here right now, you know, since Trump is literally Hitler. You know, Mark, you raise a good point. Uh, the the country on the world stage is still a place where lots of folks want to come, and, even if they're going to get tear gassed, you know, even if there's going to be some difficulty for them in that whole process. So clearly America, as far as the rest of the world is concerned, or at least people that have to take action based upon their perception of America 
other people don't really think that we're basically in Nazi Germany here. We just don't know it yet. Uh, other countries recognize, or at least refugees, people from other places uh, recognize that is the case. You know, I would also just say that's one of the major stumbling blocks in this whole argument about how these people from Honduras and El Salvador and Nicaragua and all the rest of it, um, that they are refugees or that they're asylum seekers. They've been offered asylum in Mexico. They have chosen not to take it because it's not about being safe. It's about wanting to be in America. This is very similar to if somebody on the street was saying, I am starving, please give me food. And you said, all right, I got you. Here's a, you know, here's a cheeseburger and some fries. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I only eat prime rib medium rare because I am not a savage. Uh, well, that would seem strange, right? If you're starving, don't you just want food? And aren't you grateful for that food? If that is really your argument, then you should be able to follow that through. Sherry writes, definitely another vote here for pickles on the side when it comes to burgers. I really enjoy your show and try to recruit more listeners for you when I can. Keep up the good work. Your schedule sounds grueling, but a lot of us out here appreciate your dedication. Sherry in Pennsylvania. Sherry, thank you so much. It really means a lot. The schedule is grueling, uh, but I, I love what I do. And, and the one thing that I look forward to every day, as I've told you so many times, is, is this show. Uh, that is the one thing that I uh, am always excited to do. I'm always excited to hear from all of you and, uh, and get a chance to address you here in the Freedom Hut. So, yes, thank you so much for listening in Pennsylvania. Please do spread the word. And we got uh, one more here. Jackie writes, you have to have pickles on the burger. Have to. And more nuts in brownies. Jackie... I know you're entitled to your opinion, even if it's wrong, but come on. I mean, it's one thing to say pickles on burgers, but nuts in brownies? I was going to say that's nuts, but that's too weak. Uh, you know, that's just crazy town. Tonight, I'm hoping as soon as I finish radio, although it's kind of late, uh, I might make myself some, uh, some what is it going to be? A lemon butter sauce for some soul. I'm trying to expand my fish cooking abilities and, and my fish repertoire, my culinary seafood exploits. So I'll let you know how that goes. Team, an honor and a privilege always to talk to you. I'll be back here same time, same place tomorrow. Shields high. Email security is everything, and you shouldn't trust it to one of those left-leaning commie companies out there, okay? You need to try I patriots.us ipatriots.us is a new conservative alternative to all those super lib email services ipatriots.us is secure includes more of what you want okay 30 gigs of cloud storage larger attachment sizes your emails and files are safe with an antivirus anti-spam encryption system that is phenomenal ipatriots.us won't sell your information or support liberal agenda items like a lot of those other free email providers. And iPatriots.us email is compatible with most mobile devices. Your iPhone, iPad, Android, Windows Mobile, BlackBerry, you name it. Show you're a patriot. Go to iPatriots.us now. Choose your membership program. Input your desired iPatriots email address during checkout. and our promo code BUCK. Make sure you do this. Enter promo code BUCK for 10% savings during your first year of membership.